This morning, I invite you to open to the book of Colossians, letter to the Colossians towards the end of our New Testament, chapter 4, passage that Jake read. For the past two plus months, we have been in a sermon series in Colossians, the supremacy of Christ, one of the most Christ-centered letters in the Bible, one of the most Christ-centered books in the Bible, perhaps next to Hebrews. This weekend, we're concluding our series. We've learned that Colossians was written by the Apostle Paul, one of 13 letters he wrote in our New Testament. The 13 are arranged by length from longest to shortest, from Romans to Philemon. Colossians was written about 62 AD to a small church, new church in what is today Western Turkey, in the Bible called Asia Minor or Anatolia, but today we call it Turkey. And it was once the epicenter of Christianity in the world. Now, today, Turkey is 99% Islamic. But in the early centuries of the church, the great councils, the seven great councils of the church were all held in Turkey. And it was the powerhouse. It was, the, it was ground zero for really the heartbeat of the church in the early centuries. And Paul wrote a letter to this young church. It was a church that from everything we can tell in the letter... Started out very faithful to Christ, but was now facing a very serious crisis, a dangerous crisis. And that crisis was that a false gospel, false teaching, was starting to worm its way into this congregation, and in fact, already had. And so as such, in this letter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul is reminding us that churches easily get off track. This happens all the time, and this happened all the time throughout church history. Christians get off track easily. Churches get off track easily. Denominations get off track easily. And what happens in one of the easiest ways this occurs is when a church begins to slide towards a false gospel and a counterfeit Jesus. And this is what was going on in this letter. And the problem with a counterfeit Jesus, although he may look like the real thing and be presented as the real thing. He cannot deliver people from their sin. He cannot deliver people from judgment. And he certainly cannot deliver on the promises in the Bible. That is the great danger. And so Paul's laser focus in this letter is to make sure that we understand who the real Jesus is and is not. And so we use a big word in theology called Christology, a doctrine of Christ. Colossians has a very high Christology. Now, the whole New Testament, we've said, has a very high Christology, but there are some mountain peaks when it comes to Christology, like John chapter 1 or even John chapter 5. Very high mountain peak. These are passages that exalt who Christ is, and certainly Colossians chapter 1 falls in that camp, book of Hebrews, especially Hebrews chapter 1. So, that is the passage. That's where we're heading we come this weekend to our final section, which is chapter 4, verses 2 through verse 18. We've just been taking this section by section by section. Today, and making some decisions as we come to this, and so I'm going to do is I'm going to do a recap of Colossians to begin with, because it was over about 10 weeks ago we started the series, and the key to education and the key to learning is often just the threefold repetition, repetition, repetition. And there's, some, there's such good stuff here. 
And so I'm repackaging it a little bit differently, but I want to do a recap. And then we will dive into Paul's closing challenges. There'll be three challenges and one reminder. So first of all, recap of Colossians. Like I said, it was written about 62 AD. About the same time Paul wrote, by the way, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. And as far as we can tell, all four of these letters were written from jail, from prison, probably in Rome. Background to that, probably Acts chapter 27, 28. And it's just a reminder, as I was working on it this week, it was a reminder to me that for all that we talk about Western culture drifting secular and getting increasingly non-Christian, we don't even live really in a post-Christian culture anymore. We live in a pre-Christian culture in many ways. First century was even more hostile in many ways to the gospel than even here. I mean, we're not getting, at this point, we're not getting death threats generally. We're not being hunted down and killed The first century culture in the Middle East there, especially in Palestine, was very hostile to the gospel. And so in that sense, we can take comfort that whatever they're saying, they're writing to people who are uh, used to living in a very hostile climate in the first century. And so for us in Western culture, whenever we think, oh, this is bad, it can't get any worse, under Roman rule, it was worse. And so these principles clearly apply because it was in a very hostile environment. Three reminders about Colossians as we do kind of a high-level recap and flyover. First of all, Paul's target audience. Anytime you're going to look at a book of the Bible, anytime you're going to look at one of the letters in the New Testament, it's very important to know who's being written to, who's being addressed. And here we're told up in chapter 1, verse 2, he is writing, Paul, in first. Century letters usually put the author right up front. Today we put it at the end. But usually in the first century you would put your name up front so that everyone knew. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. And then here's his target audience. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. So who's who's his target audience? Those who are in Christ or in Jesus. Paul uses this kind of union language in Christ or in Jesus almost 200 times in his letters. What does that mean? It means he's writing to those who are truly genuine born-again Christians, who've experienced spiritual rebirth, who've turned from their sin, and who are currently trusting in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And it's, it's simply a reminder, we say this all the time, simply a reminder that in every church of every size, there is a mixture of the saved and the unsaved. That's true here this morning. This congregation right here in front of me is a mixture of the saved and the unsaved. And Paul simply acknowledges that and he has this kind of distinction and most leaders and preachers throughout history have made this kind of distinction. So he's writing to those who are truly acknowledging Jesus as Savior who are born again, and he's not addressing necessarily those who are religious who might be in the church but are spiritually lost. He's hoping they're listening. He's hoping they will be redeemed. But what he is going to say and how he applies it only applies to those who have God's Holy Spirit dwelling in them. That's key. And that's, that's what, it's not just to anybody out there who's interested. And that's very important that we understand that distinction. Next thing. Next reminder, the concern of Colossians, 
what, what's the concern of this? What's driving this letter? Well, as we've been saying all along, the driving concern of Paul's letter is false teaching that had infiltrated, infected, maybe is a better word, this congregation. And while scholars, New Testament scholars, aren't exactly sure per se of the exact nature of this false teaching, there are some very strong indications what it did include. And so Paul gives us at least three characteristics of this false gospel. Chapter 2, verse 8, first of all, it contained elements of Greek philosophy. Greek philosophy was in its heyday back in this time. Plato lived about 300 years before Christ, as did Aristotle. Greek philosophy was flourishing at this time in this region of the world. And so whatever this false teaching was, there was a, there was a um, they were caught up in Greek philosophy of some kind. And in chapter 2, verse 8, you can tell that because of how Paul is responding to them. Remember, every time you read one of Paul's letters, you're always reading one half of a conversation, especially in Corinthians. You get this, where Paul brings up questions that his audience has asked, and he knows they've asked, and he's answering them. So we don't always have their side, but we get pieces of their side of the conversation. And here, they clearly, he knows they're enamored and caught up in Greek philosophy. And so he says in chapter 2, verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, which is simply two Greek words put together, meaning the love of human wisdom. There's nothing wrong with human wisdom. It's a matter of prioritizing it over God's wisdom. That's, that's the deal. So that's why he says, be, see to it that no one takes you captive by the love of human wisdom and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits. I think I shared when I was preaching this chapter early on in the series that I, as a, I minored in philosophy in college and I actually had people, mentors mine, that, would, that warned me. You shouldn't be studying philosophy. Even in a Christian college, you shouldn't be studying the history of philosophy. That's not what this says. It doesn't say don't study philosophy. It says don't be taken captive by philosophy, by human wisdom. Don't prioritize human wisdom over God's wisdom. Don't prioritize what man has said over what God has clearly spoken. That is what Paul is arguing. And they were doing that here. They were enamored with Greek philosophy. Second thing we see is in verse 18, this false teaching encouraged the worship of angels and was caught up in visions and other things. Verse 18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, which is extreme self-denial, and the worship of angels. So this false teaching was enamored with Greek philosophy. It was caught up in extreme self-denial and the worship somehow of angelic beings and going into detail about visions puffed up without reason by the sensuous mind. And then the third characteristic is that they had a whole list, and this is very typical of cults, of man-made taboos. Every cult has these, every world religion has these, all sorts of man-made. And it's not that any of these necessarily in and of themselves are wrong, but when you start saying these are essential in order to be right with God, that's the problem. That's why Paul went after the Judaizers in the book of Galatians, because they were adding circumcision as one of the requirements to be saved. Today, this is not much different. 
than some Christian denominations that add infant baptism as one of the requirements to be saved. You go to some funerals and you will hear so-and-so died. They were united to Christ in their baptism, their infant baptism. That is not something the Bible teaches. That is not when we become a Christian. We become a Christian when we repent and believe the gospel. Then the Bible commands us to be baptized as an outward symbol of that. And so here there's a whole list of man-made taboos that Paul is saying, you're getting hung up, you're putting these things in the place of faith alone and Christ alone. So starting in verse 20 down through 23, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why is if you're still alive in the world do you submit to these kinds of regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to these things that will perish according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. This is extreme, for example, asceticism would be extreme denial of ourselves of food and water and perhaps warmth. Those that went out into the desert and slept in caves and tried to deny themselves thinking somehow that earned them brownie points with God. But these are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And the, pro the problem, as the old saints would say, is that when you go to the desert to be alone, the problem is you take a deeply infected heart that's still wicked with you. And so you're going to be wrestling with that out in the desert all by yourself instead of perhaps in community with other believers. So these are some of the indications of what this was. It has elements of Gnosticism in it. They're not exactly sure what you would call this. It's never labeled, but it's very clear. False teaching had infected this congregation and was misleading people. And Paul takes aim at it. So the bottom line is the Colossian heresy. I mean, if you want to summarize it, deny that Jesus was adequate in and of himself in his atoning death, his righteous life, fulfilling the law of God, and then his atoning death. It denied that that in itself was sufficient, completely sufficient for salvation. And that by definition, ladies and gentlemen, young people, that is the definition of a cult. These false teachers were arguing for what I would call something like Jesus and fill-in-the-blank theology. Okay? Jesus and rigid self-denial. Or Jesus and their list of no-nos here, their list of asceticism and no-nos. Or Jesus and their man-made traditions. And here's the danger when you do that. Obviously, lots of them, but here's the main danger. These teachers were undermining the gospel of saving faith in Jesus alone. And they were adding things to it in saying, yeah, it is faith in Jesus, but also extreme denial of yourself and man-made traditions and these taboos and this whole list of no-nos. Don't forget to add all of those in there. And pretty soon you've got a gospel that's been stretched in every direction is unrecognizable anymore. And that brings then Paul to the third reminder under our first point, and that is his theme. His theme, although he's going to keep critiquing false theology, he's going to keep critiquing false doctrine, he is going to then circle around and around and around it with the teaching of Christ. Who's the real Jesus? What's his resume? That's what he's going to be talking about here. And he issues three powerful declarations in the opening chapter, which is the most Christ-centered of, of the chapters, really, as far as theological declarations. 
in the whole letter of Colossians. Three very powerful declarations about Jesus. And if I could summarize, ladies and gentlemen, kids, if I could summarize these three declarations, I would summarize them in the word hope for God's people. Because when you digest these and keep digesting these and meditate on them and chew on them, that is when hope in the true believer just keep, continues to surge. And we need that every week. We need to do that every day. So there's three declarations in the first chapter, all of them equal hope, tremendous hope for the believers. So the first one is that Jesus is the creator of all things. He's the, he's the creator, verses 15 through verse 17. And as we said when we started the series, a lot of scholars think this is the remnants of an ancient hymn. He is, he being Jesus, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And just to make the point clear, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So Paul's declaration here is a blanket denial. You need to understand, remember, this is a group taken captive by Greek philosophy. This is a direct, in-your-face confrontation of the Greek worldview, which was cyclical, and that the earth was eternal, and that the universe was eternal. This is a direct attack on that in reminding everyone that Jesus is the creator. Mario Levio, who's an astrophysicist, at the Space Telescope Science Institute in Boston, said, when you look at our Milky Way, as far as we can tell, there's somewhere between 100 billion and 400 billion stars. And we call it our Milky Way because when you look up at night on a dark night, what does it look like in the sky? You see this milky band in the sky. That's where it got its name. What's interesting is just over 100 years ago, most scientists thought this was the entire universe. Understandably, because when you look at it, obviously it is beyond comprehension the size of it with one to 400 billion stars. It's only in the last 100 plus years that we've come to realize that our galaxy is only one of hundreds of billions of galaxies. I was looking up just even this week, you know, what's the latest estimate? Because it keeps changing. But today, the latest estimate is anywhere between 400 billion galaxies, like our Milky Way galaxy, upwards of a trillion galaxies. I mean, you can't even comprehend this stuff. Anytime the numbers go bigger, it just obviously, it's, it's mind-blowing. And what this is saying is Jesus created every one of them. He is the creator in this Again, flew right in the face of Greek philosophy. It also refutes today's secular myth. Every age has secular myths about origins. Today, it's biological evolution. Who knows it'll be in 100 years. That's, but biological evolution right now is the reigning myth around the world of origins. And this directly contradicts that Jesus created everything. And the Bible declares He is God. He is the creator. Hebrews 1.10, the heavens are the work of your hands. And Jesus is in full control of his universe. That's why this equals hope. 
Second declaration is Jesus is the head of the church, verse 18. Chapter 1, verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. Greek word, arche, means origin of or the source of, authority of. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he may be preeminent. In the Old Testament, firstborn could mean the first child biologically born, but as we learn, it really is an announcement of primogenitor, which is that this person inherits all the rights, all the privileges, everything kind of fell onto the firstborn. And so what what Paul is saying here is Jesus has that role, that esteemed firstborn role in the universe. He's not saying he was created. He's not saying somehow he is a created being, as Jehovah's Witnesses say. Jesus is eternal. We were just told that. He created everything. So Jesus is the origin of the church. He is sovereign over his church, and he is the final authority over his church. And it's so important because... When churches lose their focus, here's what happens on, the, on who the real Jesus is when their Christology starts going kaflui. That's an ancient Greek word, kaflui. When, when, when your Christology starts going kaflui, off, you know, off track and off, off, off script, all kinds of things happen and they're all bad. And most churches and most pastors that happen this, drift this way and most denominations don't even realize because it's a slow, gradual drifting. But other agendas, what happens as you look at the history of Christianity is that other agendas then start filling the role. A church at that point doesn't stay agendaless. It just shifts agendas. It swaps out agendas. It changes agendas. That's what happens. So when the real Jesus is sort of shoved off the stage, other Jesuses start taking the place of that and other gospels and other teachings start filling in. In other agendas, like prosperity theology, which is so prominent in Western culture, and sadly, we're exporting it around the world. Or social justice takes center stage, or extreme environmentalism, or an LGBTQ gospel agenda. And something's going to move in that slot where Jesus should have been. And what happens is very, very tragic. People are misled. A false gospel is preached. Families are damaged and lives are destroyed when a false gospel takes over a pastor, a church, a denomination. And it's happened in America over the last 100 years. And you have some of our historic mainline denominations, one that I grew up in, that have largely emptied out because people are being fed nothing anymore except a false gospel. And then the third declaration is Jesus is the only Savior, verses 19 and following. So, he's the creator of all things, verses 15 to 17. He is the head of the church, verse 18. And now he is the only Savior, verses 19 through 23. For in him all the fullness, here you have one of the greatest declarations of the deity of Christ anywhere in the Bible. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Not part of it. Not 90% of God, all of it. Jesus is Yahweh in human flesh. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace by the blood of his cross. That refers to his sacrificial atonement. This, friends, is the gospel. I don't know where you're at in your spiritual journey. I don't know what you've heard or what kind of church you grew up in or did not grow up in. 
Hear this clearly. According to the Bible, the gospel, which is just a noun, it's a, it's a, it's a, noun, it's a Greek noun that translates the good news. That's what it means, the good news. The good news, or the gospel, is an announcement. It's not advice. It's not a self-help program. It's an announcement of what God has done in the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of his son. That's what it is. Before it's even an invitation, before it's a summons, it's first a, a declaration of what God has done, and then it leads to a summons. So you say, well, what's the summons? Well, it's Jesus in Mark 1.15. Jesus came preaching, and he said, repent and believe the good news. But repent and believe is not the gospel. It's the summons of the gospel. you got a verse like John 3.16, which actually has both in it. It has the announcement, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, so that, and then you have the summons. Whoever believes in him will not perish. So there is possibility of perishing, but have eternal life. So don't get confused between the gospel announcement and the summons. There are two sides of a coin. So let me, let me step back and do one of these in other words. In other words, before salvation, here is the description of a human being. Cut off from God, alienated from God, enemy of God. Now at this point, most non-religious people instinctively respond something like this. I'm not an enemy of God. I just, I'm not sure if he exists, and if he is, I'm, okay, but I, I'm certainly not out fighting again. I'm not out promoting some kind of anti-God theology. I'm not an enemy of God. That's the instinctive response of most non-religious people when you bring up the Bible's reminder that we're born enemies of God, alienated from God. And most religious, a lot of religious people would also say, I, I'm not alienated from God. I'm trying to live a good life. I'm trying to be moral. I'm trying to obey the Ten Commandments. I hope God is pleased. And it's precisely, let hear this, at this point that Paul does such a brilliant job of deconstructing a false gospel in Colossians and in Romans, I would add. What's his point? That when we start adding things to the gospel, and I mean adding things like these are requirements along with believing in Jesus that you have to do to be saved. When we start adding things to the gospel, rigid self-denial, extreme asceticism, lists of no-nos, man-made traditions. What we're really doing at that point, says Paul, we're trying to be our own savior. That's exactly what we're doing. We're trying to control the situation. We're trying to control God. And that is why this book says in, really, in reality, what we're doing when we add anything to faith in Jesus is we're fighting God at that point. And we're refusing to admit our hearts are deceitful and wicked. And the only hope is faith alone in Christ alone. That's it. Otherwise, you're reduced to karma. The Hindu belief that whatever you sow, you reap. And there's no exceptions. Karma and grace are at opposite ends of the spectrum. Absolutely night and day. And then lastly, notice the word if in verse, 22, uh, verse 23. I'll read verses 22 and 23. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. That's why he did it. Then notice verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, steadfast, 
stable, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard that has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven of which I, Paul, became a minister. Would you please notice the word if in verse 23, if. Paul says, someone who professes Christ is reconciled to God, is the recipient of all that he's writing about, if. If what? If they continue in their faith. That's why Jesus said the one who continues to the end will be saved. Now, persevering doesn't save you. What persevering shows is you were truly saved in the first place. That's exactly what it shows. In other words, Paul is showing that true saving faith leads to new desires. It leads to new things being important to you. It leads to new attitudes, new abilities, a a desire to forgive those who have betrayed us, a desire to stop lying, a desire to stop abusing food and alcohol. It leads to new behaviors and new habits. And Paul is saying we give evidence of being truly born again if we are displaying these increasingly in our lives. And if we're not, then we're just religious people who are espousing things, but they haven't taken root in us. That brings us now to the closing section where there are closing challenges. These are very practical, and we're just going to go through these rather quickly, but they're very important. So, the closing challenges from verse 2 to 18, there are three challenges and a reminder, and then we'll have our summons. So, challenge number one is a challenge to pray diligently. And this is in verses 2 to 4. Continue steadfastly in prayer, or be devoted in prayer, the NIV says. Watch, being watchful with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also with us that God may open us a door. He's talking about a door for evangelism and missions in in a certain area. To declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in, where? He's in prison. He's in prison. So, notice a couple components of biblical prayer. Number one, biblical prayer, according to verse two, is regular and consistent. We noted that St. Augustine's mom prayed for over 30 years for his conversion to Christ before he was saved. Don't ever, ever give up praying for somebody, ever, until they've drawn their last breath. Keep praying. There's always hope. That's a great reminder. Secondly, verse two, Biblical prayer is thankful in its focus. Paul uses this word all the time, with thanksgiving. And remember, where's he writing from, kids? Where's Paul writing from? He's not sitting at a resort. He's not laying on the beach. He's not writing from an ivory tower or the mountains where he's meditating. He's in jail. He's in prison. Probably not very comfortable conditions, and yet his letter is filled with thanksgiving. In fact, these four letters... They're all written from prison, are filled with thanksgiving. And then, thirdly, biblical prayer is specific. So it's regular, it's thankful. If your prayers don't have thanksgiving weaved into them, they're not biblical prayers. And then they're specific. He says, Pray for me that there would be a door open. Paul wanted open doors as he was preaching the gospel. And so he's asking them, not just, not just God bless the missionaries. But Paul says, no, no, pray specifically. I'm praying that doors would open. Doors of ministry would open. We were down at Eliodante this last year. Great staff down there. 
Great to have Mike here this morning. I know that they pray for doors to be opened to the villages and the people around them. They want hearts to be opened and homes to be opened and villages to be opened and churches in those villages to be opened to the gospel. That's what Paul's saying. Pray those kinds of things. Pray very specifically. So that's the challenge to pray diligently. Second challenge, challenge to be wise. Verse 5. Paul is very specific. And again, we always notice this pattern in Paul, lots of doctrine up front and then lots of challenges in the second half of his letter. And, and so we continue to get these challenges. Here's the next one, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. It's no mystery, friends, the Bible puts a huge emphasis on wisdom, choosing wisdom and rejecting folly. And it's a daily battle, daily battle. In the Old Testament, there are at least three books devoted to wisdom. You know what they are? One of them, Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes. We call these the wisdom books. And the focus of wisdom literature is choosing wisely in life. Wisdom literature wants to show us something. That our daily choices in choosing what is holy and rejecting what is sinful, and that's a daily battle, have tremendous consequences for ourselves, our family, our mental health, our emotional health, our culture, and for our eternity. And it's a daily battle. Choose wisely. Choose wisely. Third challenge is about our speech and our conversation. Verses 7 through 18. I'm sorry, verse 6. Then we'll get 7 eight. There's a challenge about our speech. Verse 6, let your speech or I think the NIV says, let your conversation always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. The Bible is filled, especially Proverbs, talk about a wisdom book filled with verses about our tongue. A lot of them are concentrated in chapter 10 of Proverbs. And Jesus was especially pointed on this when he said, the mouth, your mouth, my mouth, is a direct pipeline to the heart. So that what is regularly coming out of your mouth, day in, day out, week in, week out, is simply an open advertisement what's in your heart. You can't hide it. Others will see it. You may deny it, but others will clearly see it. Jesus said in Luke 6.45, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Luke 6.45, Jesus, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Of. And then lastly, I said there was a reminder. There's a reminder here to invest in people. Now, the, I, I, didn't, I didn't phrase this one as a challenge because there's no command in the imperative here related to it, but there is an example. And so there's a reminder here. Paul invested in people constantly. We know that, in fact, we use three words here, follow, connect, make. Follow Jesus, connect in a local church, make disciples. Paul was always making disciples. He was always mentoring. He was always discipling people, a verb, discipling them, pouring into them. Invest. And here you have just a small reminder, a small example of all the people that Paul was pouring into. And there's actually three groups of them in verses 7 through 18. There are those who stayed, those who prayed, and those who strayed. There's a three-point outline right there. Mike, take that back, turn it into Spanish, preach it, brother. But you got three groups of people here, those who stayed, and this would include Tychius, Aristarchus, as you read the list, Mark, Justice, Luke. Paul mentions them by name. 
And then he said, secondly, those who clearly prayed that he knew were praying faithfully, he mentions Epaphras, verse 12, is one of you, a servant, greets you, who are always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. And then in verse 14, he mentions a name, and there's a very sad story with it, Demas. Demas. He's mentioned three times in Paul's letters. First two times are in Colossians and Philemon, where, where he actually he's identified as a fellow prisoner with Paul. And then sadly, there's a final reference to Demas in 2 Timothy 4.10. And Paul says he had forsaken him, that Demas had forsaken him and loved the present world or the things of the world, but was no longer a faithful follower of Christ. And that does, it's, what's sad is people forsake Christ. Some actually abandon the physical church, but some will stay in church but abandon Christ. But it's, you can tell years later bumping into them, they're no longer passionate about the things of God anymore. And so a reminder here, Paul constantly invested in people. It was a nonstop activity. And it's a reminder to us to be making, if we know Jesus, we're supposed to be discipling people. It's not just for the pastors. It's not just for the staff. It's not just for the elders. If you name the name of Christ, you are under orders to be investing in beyond your children and grandchildren in investing in others around you and helping them mature spiritually. There's different ways to do this, but we are to be doing it, and Paul set a great example of this. All right, summons this morning. What's our summons? Two things as we land the plane on this great book of the Bible. Number one. And let us hear this very, very importantly. We must be born again to inherit eternal life. Jesus says in John 3, you must be born again, meaning you must repent and believe the gospel if you want to gain eternal life and be on the new heaven and new earth. It's the only way to be saved from wrath. Trying to follow the Ten Commandments is not how you get saved. We'll go into that in depth next month. Trying to be a good moral person, adding other things to the gospel, that is not how you're saved. You are only saved when you come to the point when you realize you are hopeless in your own efforts. You are a sinner before God. He is just in his wrath and condemnation of you. And you cry out to Christ as Savior, as your hope. Believing that he lived for you and that he died and was resurrected for you. And then you get a new status according to the Bible. Paul uses this terminology, risen with Christ, union with Christ, in Christ. But it means Jesus is not just my example. We've been saying this over and over. What is he? He's my power because he actually is alive in me if I know him. So, for someone number one this morning, do you have any doubt you know Christ? I, I, I couldn't end this, this series without asking that, friends of all of us. Are you sure you're not a counterfeit Christian? Are you sure you know Christ? There are some who sit in the church for years, who sit in churches for decades, who are not born again. Do you know Christ? And are you sure you have entered into a relationship that is genuine saving faith? Final summons this morning. And this is to those who are sure they have. Here it is. A new status brings new responsibilities. That is exactly what this letter is full of. 
If we're in Christ, if the risen Christ is alive of us, in, inside us, if the Holy Spirit is alive inside of us, then I have new responsibilities, chiefly among those, according to this letter, are one, killing sin daily, and two, choosing obedience daily. And we've said all along in this series that, sadly, friends, many Christians are naive to the war we're in. Yeah, they treat sin like an occasional nuisance, but they're not viewing it as something I am locked in mortal combat with, like Paul writes about in Romans 8.13, that great verse that John Owen turned into a sermon series, The Mortification of Sin. They're not attacking it every single day. Hebrews 12.14 couldn't be any clearer. Make every effort to be holy. That's not a lightweight thing. Make every effort to be holy. Why? Because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. I was reading a sermon this week by Charles Spurgeon, one of his unnamed sermons. I mean, it's named, but one of his just unknown sermons for the most part. Onward, it's called. And so, as I got towards the end of it, or reading through it, he, I came to just this great paragraph about the need to kill sin and choose obedience. Sometimes it just helps to hear it in somebody else's verbiage. Without holiness, this was preached 149 years ago in London. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Young people, you hear that? Without holiness, no. If you're cheating, if you're indulging in pornography, if you're lying to your mom and dad, if you are involved in premarital sex, if you're cheating at school, if you have some other kind of backstage sin that you're trying to hide, understand that if it continues, no one, you will not see the Lord. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. The Christian soldier, Spurgeon says, has to fight with sins every day. Our sins will have to be struggled with until our dying day. And then even maybe on our deathbed. There's a <laughs> sin is a real thing and must be wrestled with. There is an evil heart of belief within us and a devil outside of us. And we must watch and pray and cry mightily and strive and struggle. That's not a hopeless statement. That's not meant to lead you to despair. It's meant to lead you to action if the living Christ is inside you. I have to remind myself, let me put it in the first tense, I have, in the first person, I have to remind myself of the terrible consequences of not killing sin on a regular basis and what's at stake. If I am not regularly attacking sin, especially one of those besetting sins, all of us have different sins we're succumbed to, it will destroy my marriage. It will destroy my reputation. It will destroy my joy, my health, my emotional stability, my children, my joy, my life. But choosing Christ and killing sin will lead to joy. And whatever your circumstances, like Paul sitting in prison, it will lead to peace. And it will lead to intimacy with Christ. And so I close with this gospel promise. I used this one other sermon earlier on in Colossians. But I love it, and it's so hope-filled. John's Gospel, chapter 14, verse 21. Hear this promise, saints of God. Those of you who know Christ, hear this. If you're not a saint of God yet, hear what is available in the Gospel to those who believe and then demonstrate it by their obedience. John 14, 21. 
whoever has my commands. If you have one of these on your lap, either in a device form or in paper, you have his commands. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I too will love them and I will show myself to them. That is the promise of spiritual intimacy with our Lord that this world can't hold a candle to and will never understand the peace of God that passes all understanding. That, ladies and gentlemen, that boys and girls, that young people, is the supremacy of Christ that comes screaming out of this letter by the Apostle Paul. Keep reading it. Keep studying it. Keep meditating on it. And keep choosing holiness. Father, we couldn't be more thankful for Paul. We know he was a flawed man, as all the great saints are. But we also know that you chose to inspire, by your Holy Spirit, 13 of his letters in our New Testament. And we thank you for these letters, how clear they are, how hope-filled they are, and yet how pointed they are. Forgive us when we gloss over commands and don't pay attention to certain sins. Help me, help each true believer here today to be faithful to your commands, to fight to kill sin every day, and to pursue holiness with all of our heart, that we are light bearers on our planet, in our neighborhoods, in our schools. We pray this in Jesus' name.